0: Welcome to the T's and C's,
1: Tiso and Gentel,
0: also known as the Terms and Conditions podcast. Executively produced by George Fori Addo.
1: Welcome to the USA special of
0: The Election Reflection. We decided to do a four part series in the build up to the presidential election. Tiso and I are not experts on presidential elections. So we're bringing on guests who are...
1: Bringing experts in to cover everything from voter suppression, white supremacy, to the Electoral College.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the T's and C's, aka our USA election reflection. We are really excited today to be joined by Kanisha Johnson, who is a fifth-year PhD candidate in a department of government at Harvard University. And Kanisha's research focuses on... Inequality, race, punishment systems, um, and she's also the co-author of *Deadly Justice*, a statistical portrait of the death penalty. Kanisha, I think you are first Harvard guest ever. <laughs> Thank you. This is this is me and Tisa are a little bit gaslight like, we don't, we don't love. We What's don't... it like? What's it like? Yeah. <laughs> it's
2: like. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me. No, honestly, I. I was just as gassed when I started at Harvard, but since being here, you know, it's just full of normal people.
1: (laughs) Did they get to say, speak an English accent?
2: All the time. (laughs) (laughs) So sick!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just to give the listeners some context, um, Kenesha's been in the States for over a decade now. You were originally born
2: in Britain. Yeah, that's correct. I grew up in Colchester. Um, And came over here about 10 years ago.
0: You've been doing some amazing work, Nisha. I mean, it'd be really good to get our listeners to understand a little more why we've invited you to come on the election reflection. And it is to do with your work on um, prison abolition, but also your work with previously incarcerated people and how their vote is being suppressed right now
2: trying to think back to when I first started to get interested in this and I think it was the first class that I took in undergrad in North Carolina and it was called Race, Innocence and the Decline of the Death Penalty and it was during that class that I really started to understand how messed up the whole system was with regard to people who had been incarcerated. Fast forward four or five years I'm now working on my PhD looking at how interactions with punishment systems across the US impact people's behavior and then how people engage in politics. And then obviously a big part of that is voting rights. And then just the more I learn about it, the more I'm just horrified with all of the different intricacies to keep people away from the polls who have been involved in the, in the legal system.
1: When I visited America a couple of years ago, one of the things I kind of anecdotally kind of took notice of was the emphasis on punishment. Mm -hmm. Like I was in New York and the emphasis on punishment for for minor transgressions to big infractions, but punishment was also a length in prison. That kind of led me to start thinking of the statistics of how mass incarceration is working in the United States. Could you speak about that a little bit, Kenisha, about mass incarceration, how it impacts on everything else?
2: I think that the US really has like a culture of punishment. So it's not just like just a bit of background. It's not just like the prison system where they're targeting people is through like redlining. So in the US there are a bunch of policies instituted basically describing or mandating where black and white people can live and then they were preventing black people from getting mortgages and then they started this whole thing of the welfare queen so it was punishing black women especially like black mothers in school there is a huge amount of punishment exclusions and suspensions for kids and that falls disproportionately on black children even down to kindergarten like you can be in reception and you still get excluded and that makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, and then you really see the rise in mass incarceration start around the 60s and 70s. So when this war on drugs happened, although there are there are other reasons that this has happened, right? They started passing laws that disproportionately targeted Black people right after we got rid of slavery with these Black codes. So yeah, the prison system has been booming for the past few decades. And then from that it, difference, depending on what state you're in, will determine like if you're allowed to vote so if you've been if you've been incarcerated so vermont and maine they never take your right to vote away so you can vote while you're in prison but maine has is basically all white i think only 1.7 percent of maine's population is black but then in states such as florida and then a few others dotted in the south you permanently lose your right to vote Um, and then just given the mass number of people who are in prison especially black people it's a huge number of people who just can't go to the polls anymore
0: it's making me think about the uk context i'm bringing my little a level a level law here right so i think it's hearse versus uk one of the big issues we have in the uk is that prisoners can't vote and that that voting could be obviously change elections because we have like a pretty like flawed system of first past the post all that stuff like you know and and it's making me think about like what you just said about maine the fact that there's a there's a state where prisoners are actually able to vote like that is like that seems quite in my eyes just think of the uk context quite revolutionary but then on the flip side of it You've got states where if you've ever been in prison, that means that you automatically lose your right to vote forever.
1: Is prison the suspension of your normal societal rights in the fact that you go there as a form of punishment? So the actual act of going to prison is the punishment. So you lose certain rights and etc. that you have when you are a full citizen, when you're uh, when, when, when you released, you regain them. Is that how it's meant to work? I'm not too sure. No,
0: you don't regain them. That's the point. That's what Kanisha
1: Yeah, saying. I don't know. I'm saying, saying in, theory, I mean, I mean,
0: in theory, that's what I'm trying to say. Is that what yeah, you're in theory, so the way that with
2: punishment, there's a few justifications for it, right? You've just got the pure incapacitation, like we're going to punish you because you've done something wrong. So we're going to put you in prison so you're like stripped of all your liberties and freedoms. And then there's another one, you know, that, that's like re um, Rehabilitation. So, what you were saying, Tiso, is just like, yes, when you put in prison, it's supposed to be the punishment. Theoretically, once you finish that sentence, The punishment's supposed to be over, but that's not the case in the United States. And the reason why it's so different is because in the U.S. you've got the federal system. Not that many people are held in federal prisons. I think it's only like five to six percent of incarcerated people. But all of it happens at the state and local level. So that's how you're able to have like Maine and Vermont that never takes the right to vote away. And then you've got all these other states scattered around the country that says, actually, no, you can't ever vote. Um, And then you've got a few in between. So we have prison. We also have probation and parole and then you have these like fines and fees part of it which is the really messed up part to me so in florida and then a few other states if you you can't vote until you've paid off every monetary fine and fee that is associated with your sentence so if you're on parole or probation in most states you have to pay to be on parole or probation okay. so like in north carolina where i've done a lot of work you have to pay I think it's like 30 or $40 to be on probation. If you've got a tag, then you have to pay for the tag. If you have to get a drug test, then you have to pay for the drug test. And then if you're on like a five year probation sentence, which is what, if you've been in prison for a felony, for like a higher level felony, then you, then you have to serve a five year probation or parole, sorry, after you are released. So then you're accumulating all of this debt while you're on probation or parole. That you can't pay off, and then you're not allowed to vote until you've paid that debt off. That's how you can like permanently be disenfranchised because people can't make the money to pay these fines off.
0: Am I gonna have any week in this, this series <laughs> where I'm not just sat here? Like, what is life? Like, this is <laughs> this is insane. It's so distressing.
1: What shocks me, and from what you just said, Kanisha, is the kind of genealogy here. So obviously the UK and the US are linked, right? So this mm-hmm. kind of, when you mentioned that to me, it makes me think of the debtors' prisons of the 18th and 19th centuries. Mm-hmm. So these people- What's that thing? So the debtors' prisons were where they put, people owed money, and but to go into, when you got entered into these prisons, you had to pay for everything. So you just accumulated more debt. So you were in debt already for being in prison, but now you're accumulating more debt and if you had money you could pay for a better place within the prison but most people didn't have the money so you Mm -hmm. could never get out of prison and so in effect a a continuation if you will of the same kind of thing Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are, and that's that's exactly the point that a lot of people are attacking these laws, saying we we were supposed to have outlawed debtors' prison. Like we're not supposed to punish people just because they don't have any money. Uh, so that's where a lot of lawsuits that are, some of them are going through the courts at the moment. There was just one in North Carolina. I was working on this project, and essentially the Supreme Court in North Carolina. Okay, let me back up for a sec. The group that was working on this case was arguing that we should extend the right to vote to anyone who has been released from prison because technically they've finished the main part of their sentence. They are now working in society. They're paying taxes. They're doing everything that they need to do, so they should be able to vote. On top of that, a lot of people who are still on probational parole or are excluded from voting is because they're having to pay these fines and fees. And then the Supreme Court in North Carolina said, okay, anyone who is not allowed to vote just because of this fines and fees, like outstanding payment part, you're now allowed to vote again. So in North Carolina, literally, this was decided, it must have been September 15th or something. Now we've got 10s of 1000 people who are able to vote again, which is really exciting. And And then this case is hopefully going to continue next year because the court basically said we can't extend it to people who are on probation and parole yet. In North Carolina next year, they're now going to potentially have another case where we can extend the franchise a little bit more.
1: What's worrying is that the fact that it's the idea that we thought America has gone through that process of extending the franchise to people. But now it seems like they've always been consistently disenfranchising certain groups of people. That's what concerns me. When I was reading your work, the idea of mass incarceration is especially increased exponentially over the last 20 years, you say, roughly? Yeah. how is this impacted on like modern politics like how has it shaped the world we live in Right, like, immediately I, I I would argue anecdotally massively mm-hmm.
2: yeah I mean it's got a huge effect not only because of the number of people who are in prison like getting exploited by the system but also the families of these people right so the children children are going to be growing up without parents or it's going to be normalized to children to have mm-hmm the government invading your family life in this way the way that the culture of punishment is just like seeping into every aspect of certain people's lives right because a lot of people are not ever going to have contact with this system but for other groups of people it's completely normal which is really
0: terrifying to me. One of the things that I think it'd be really good for you to talk about Kenisha, just quickly before you tell us about some of the work you've been doing so what's the difference between federal prison and state prison? So
2: federal prison is a prison where you'll go if you have committed a federal crime. For instance, one might be trespassing drugs or some other type of contraband across state lines. So because it's now occurred across state lines, it now goes straight to the federal court. Whereas if it's a state prison or state courts, it's regarding laws that have happened within the state. So it's under the state jurisdiction. For federal crimes, you'll go to a federal prison and then for state crimes, you go to a state prison usually. So it's all about the jurisdiction, if you're under the jurisdiction of the whole country or an individual state. So,
1: so and I guess discrepancy in jurisdictions, uh, your punishment be worse or less given depending what state you're in for a similar crime
2: oh yeah absolutely there are different laws there'll be different procedures some of the death penalty work that i've done there's mm-hmm. there's a really interesting report it's called the two percent report and essentially only two percent of counties in the whole of the u.s carry out the majority of execution so it's not about how egregious a crime was it's about where you committed the crime so mm-hmm. if you're in harris county texas which is where houston is in texas it's a massive county if you commit a death penalty eligible crime there you are way more likely to get the death penalty than if you are in another state that's even banned it so it's entirely dependent mostly dependent i should say upon where you live rather than the crime that you've actually committed
0: um just to bring it back to um the election kanisha so in light of the things you've been telling us about with regards to prison with regards to Voting rights and democratic processes. What are the concerns about this up and coming election, particularly thinking about previously incarcerated populations, actually incarcerated populations? What could possibly, let's say Trump gets back into power, what are the other concerns that we should be thinking about? So, two things. What concerns should we be thinking about in the run up to the election and post election?
2: Yeah. So I think for the run up to the election, I'm going to it's a bit of good news. So there are a couple of propositions on the ballot on some ballots across the United States that are set up to extend voting rights to people who have been previously incarcerated. One of them is in California, it's Proposition 17. And it's essentially saying like anyone who has been released from prison should be allowed to vote immediately. In the run up to the election, there are a few things on the ballot that are actually exciting for people to be able to get their their rights restored for voting. That's the one nugget of good news, I guess, I'd like to put in. Other concerns that we might have are going to be in these places where the rights have been extended. So like in North Carolina, where a lot of people are now able to vote, where they weren't able to before, I'm concerned around the information that's given to them. So even though a lot of people are able to vote, they might not know because the law is so confusing. This has happened quite a few times. It happened in Texas and again in North Carolina. People are so confused around the laws about whether or not they're able to vote that they just register and vote anyway. And if you are on probation or parole and you're not allowed to vote if you do you get another felony charge so there was a woman in texas who voted didn't realize she wasn't able to vote she did and then she got put in prison again because the charge is felon voting that to me is really confusing because it's always in the fine print of like the vote of the ballot that you're filling out and no one reads the fine print so i if you don't know that you're not able to vote no one's telling you when you're registering hey by the way if you've got a charge or if you're completing a parole or probation sentence, you're not able to vote. If no one's doing that, then that's concerning because a lot of people can get in a lot of trouble around that.
1: It's the mindset that it kind of creates. It creates the idea in a, in a marginalized population that politics doesn't work. So why mm-hmm. bother? Yeah, exactly. This disengagement allows effectively what walk- I guess it kind of applies to... Uh, what Lord, Lord Helsham said about England and an elective dictatorship, because it doesn't even allow for a, a proper circulation of elites at the top.
2: Yeah, and then just the fear that it instills in certain groups, like, I read this really harrowing account and there was a someone who had been charged with this felon voting charge got in trouble, and then they basically said, like, I'm going to tell my kids to not vote, because they can get into a lot of trouble, because they don't understand the law around it. And it's like, people are not telling us the rules, because they want to get us into trouble. So it's, it's not even directly the people who face these immediate consequences, it's the community around them, and how much it's dissuading them from turning out.
0: So what are the things that you've been doing, Kenesha, more locally, to sort of help support disenfranchised voters basically
2: yeah so I think that the way that we're going to get through this is to follow community leaders and activists and organizers they know the community they know how to disseminate information around voting they know the different populations that we need to reach so outside of my academic work I've been trying really hard to support those people and take the lead from them rather than elected officials um has that been going well it's well i mean it's it's such a a lot of the time it just seems so overwhelming that it's like i have absolutely no idea where to start but just doing little things each day you know you can sign up to help remind people if they need to register to vote because there are different registration dates for registering to vote based off of different states so making sure that people really understand like, hey, you need to go to the office to register to vote because in Massachusetts, for instance, if you've changed address, you cannot register to vote online. You have to go to the place or send a send a letter to be able to do it. So it's just like getting that kind of information out um, has been quite, has been helpful. For it's, I think most of the time it's just me doing it, trying to cope. <laughs> I don't know if it's actually doing anything in the wider context.
0: No, it definitely is. I mean... God, T, this this series is going to, it's a lot.
1: When you started talking about this, the federal and the state level, it kind of comes back to the formation of America, like the idea of states' rights versus the kind of overarching reach of the executive and people pushing back against this and, and wanting that right to do what they want. So in effect, like some of the kind of literature on prisons is about looking for cheap labour. So mm-hmm. states looking for cheap labour to keep, profits up to so it's all intertwined in the kind of foundation of this place of of this country and it's it's quite weird (laughs) like it's weird
2: yeah no it's really weird and especially because like what you were saying about cheap labor like that's still a thing as well like i i can't remember when i learned about this but victoria's secret used to get their stuff made in prisons
0: i think it was on 13th i saw that the netflix documentary
1: the uk's so different though we're doing exactly the same over here
0: yeah exactly the same
1: so yeah. it's, like, it's the carceral rule logics of prisons? Like it, it makes business sense for capitalism to keep maintaining that, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you mentioned this earlier, Chantel, but like the ram- like the outcomes after the election is also going to be like the US and the UK transport these models around the world. So the US has, I think, 85, upwards of 80 different policing academies around the world. So they're literally like just coming up with these models of policing and punishment and then exporting them after the election. But to be honest, if Donald Trump, if either Donald Trump or Joe Biden get into office, they're still going to be expanding the prison system in the carceral state, because Joe Biden has said that he wants to pump in more money to policing, not defund it. And same with Trump and the Republicans. they they're gonna be increasing police power, and it scares me because of not only the implications that that has in the U.S., but also what that means for the rest of the world, right? Because if we're coming up with these new models of policing and then exporting it around the world, it means that it's not just confined here; it's going to be all around the world.
1: Oh, oh Jesus!
0: <laughs> <laughs> Kanisha, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, thank you. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for educating us. Listeners, we'll be back again next Friday. (laughs) That
1: was a lot.
0: Thank you for listening to The T's and Cs with Tiso and Chantel. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram.